Good morning, everyone. My name is Sam, and uh, I get the joy of preaching a lot here. We're going to be in the uh, book of Malachi, and uh, if you're new, we basically go through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse, and uh, we have booklets for it. You'll find a sticker in the front of that booklet that says, oops, we printed an unedited copy, so we are not complete idiots. We do know there are errors in there, so show grace as you go through that. We want to save money and not reprint it, so there you go. If you want the edited version, it's online, as are all of our sermons and our series, and uh, if you get behind or if you've missed one, uh, especially for Malachi, in fact, the first sermon kind of gives you a history lesson to get you caught up to what is actually going on, of which I, I will explain some things, but not all. We'll be in Matthew beginning at the end of November, and we're going to be in Matthew a heck of a long time, but uh, it's going to be a joy. So today we're in Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to read the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 6. So if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew, and then turn to the left. It's the last, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and after Malachi, it was about 400 years of silence, and then uh, Jesus shows up. So Malachi chapter 1 Verse 6, this is what God's Word says. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is God's word, and let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a heavy, weighty thing. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning you will be present among us in such a way that you will stir our hearts very deeply. And you will challenge our worship. You will challenge our hearts, the heart that we can hide from everyone except you. I pray that you'll renew us, Father, and you will renew and create in us a heart that is desperate to worship you. 
thank you for all that you've done in our church and in our lives. And we ask that your name will be lifted high this morning. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Malachi. Whoo! This one was hard hitting. Now, this is a, a part one of part two. So I'm not going to hit everything in this particular text, but combined with next week, you'll kind of get the full picture of what's going on because it's an ongoing conversation that, that God is having through Malachi hypothetically with Israel. Now, this text is really, if we just boil it down to something, it's about how the Israelites worship. How they worship. And how they worship, as we see here, tells us a lot about who they worship. Or at least what they think of Him at this moment. And we too, this morning, in case you weren't certain, are gathered here to worship. We're not gathered here to be entertained. We're not gathered here to learn, though I think that will probably happen. We're not even primarily gathered here to see each other. We're gathered here to worship. We no longer worship exactly like they did back at this time with the Israelites making sacrifices at the temple, though they were singing like we do. Romans 12.1, if you've never read it, tells us that our sacrifices have changed and that our bodies now, our very lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our decisions, our actions, all these things are actually living sacrifices. That we are in a constant state of worship for those who are in Christ. might argue that those who are not in Christ are also in a constant state of worship because we are creatures of worship. We are made to worship. We don't worship like this. And the question for us, though, if our lives are these acts of worship constantly, maybe we need to ask ourselves, what does our worship reveal about our opinion of God? About our love for God or our fear of God? If someone were to comment or have an opinion of what you thought about God by your worship, quote, quote, what would they say? How would they describe that you feel about God? See, God's message through Malachi is that worship matters. See, it's been a hundred years since the scattered Israelites, and we, again, went through that history lesson. It's been a hundred years since they've been returned from exile to their home and they've gathered. It's been a hundred years since they rebuilt the temple. It's been a hundred years since they appointed priests and they began to have worship services again and began to make sacrifices at the altar of God again. A hundred years of that. And Nehemiah 12, because the history of what happens prior to this time, takes place in Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you ever want to know the backstory, that kind of helps you. So in Nehemiah 12, that records the day when the people rededicated the walls of the city that had been rebuilt, and they restored the first services at the temple. So you can read kind of like, okay, what was it like? And what you see is that the priests are assembled. They even go and gather all the instruments that they have. They create two great choirs, and they're walking along the walls of the city throughout the whole city, singing, praising God. 
in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, verse 33, it says, They offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. That's the men they're talking about to begin with. How do I know that? The women and the children also rejoiced. I pray for more men to to praise God like that. To sing like that. As you read more about what happened, it says in all the excitement of that day, of the joy of that day, the people were incredibly eager to serve. They're all, what can I do? And you can read again, Nehemiah chapter 12. You got guys signing up to to kind of manage the storerooms. You have people joining the worship team and and being singers. You have people to administrate the finances. You even have a couple of people serving on the security team at the gates of the city. Sounds familiar, huh? Excited. They're not having to put anything in bulletins. Everyone's like, what can I do? I'll do that, I'll do that, let's do this, let's go. And it says in verse 47 of that same chapter, And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. We see when they dedicated the temple, when when services restarted again, when when they were worshiping, it was important to them. Hugely important. It was a time of great joy. It was a time of great unity. It was a time of great sacrifice for the priests and the people. They were singing. They were showing up on time. They were giving. They were sacrificing. They were there. No one was twisting their arm. They wanted to be there. It was joyful. They were excited. But as we read Malachi, it's been 100 years since that time, and Israel is no longer zealous to worship. I didn't say they stopped worshiping. But they're no longer feeling like they were back then. It's only been a hundred years, a few generations, and worship has become heartless, and obedience in worship has become rather unimportant. Neither the priests, and you can hear them complaining in this text, weary of it, snorting at it, church again. Those are the priests. You know if the priests aren't excited about it, the pastors aren't excited about it, the people are not excited about it. It's become routine, it's become a check box, it's become a joyless duty. And really, as I've said already, having not experienced the prosperity that they expected, right? Remember Zechariah came, it's going to be an awesome time, you guys are going to be blessed, God's going to show up, defend the city personally, make your name huge. Everyone's going to want to be in Jerusalem with you because God is there. That hasn't happened in the way they expected. And so now they're disillusioned, looking at their lives that are hard and difficult, asking, where are you, God? And they're doubting God's promises, which leads to pretty apathetic worship. 
And even though God, the very first thing He says to him is, I love you. I love you. I've loved you. And I'm going to love you. They don't believe Him. They don't believe God. And their attitude towards worship is where you see that. See, anytime men declare by word or deed that worship isn't worth it, it's just not worth it anymore. What they're really declaring, what we are really declaring when you get to that point, is that God is really not worthy to be honored or obeyed. That's why it's such a hard-hitting text. Because don't for a second stand back and go, well, if I was there, I would be one of the excited ones worshiping. I don't think so. In verse 6, we see that God describes himself as both father and master to Israel. And I think this is really the heart of the text. It takes these two images, father and master. Now, God is a father, okay? And as a father, he is owed honor. Now, many of us have really crappy fathers. I recognize that. But whatever your father didn't do or did do that was negative, for a second imagine what you had hoped that father would have been like. And then take the perfect version of that and know that that's God. God is a perfect Father. Unlike our earthly fathers, He doesn't fail, ever. He perfectly loves. He perfectly provides. He perfectly knows everything there is to know about you as His child. And He perfectly shepherds you in the way that you need it. He is the perfect Father, and as the perfect Father, He is due honor because He is worthy of honor. Many of our fathers, and many of us as fathers, quite frankly, are not worthy of honor. But God is. So He's a Father. And for a lot of us, it triggers something bad, so I'm trying to fight against that a little bit. But he also says that he's a master, which in our culture today, especially in the northwest part of the United States, we do not like masters. We do not like authority. We do not like someone telling us how it is. God says he is a master, and what he means by that is that he is owed our unconditional allegiance. Unconditional allegiance. See, unlike the leaders of our world, right? We look at the leaders of our world, especially now, and we go, what the snarf are you guys doing, right? It is difficult to find a leader worthy of honor. And even when you think you find one worthy of honor, it doesn't take but one Twitter post to find out the guy's a slime ball, right? So the reality is we understand leaders are hard to come by Good ones, and therefore most leaders we don't trust and are very suspicious to follow. But unlike the leaders of the world, our master, God, is perfect. Right? He is perfectly ruling. 
He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly powerful. He is perfectly protective. He is due our respect because He is worthy of our respect. Now, God is worthy of this honor and our obedience not because what He does for us or will do for us, but because simply of who He is. That's hugely important. Now, I love how Pastor Tim Keller says it this way in speaking about God's worthiness. He says, God is not just wise and loving. He is gloriously and surpassingly so. He is the best and greatest in every quality. He not he is not just important and worthy of our adoration, submission and attention, but gloriously and supremely so. He is infinitely more worthy of your adoration, submission and attention than anyone or anything. Every other being is less than nothing in comparison with God's glory. He is worthy. God is worthy. And the Israelites are declaring Him unworthy, God says, by how they sacrificed at His altar. What He calls His table. He goes, so what's the deal with sacrifices? You should ask that question. okay? Because I'm going to give you the answer. But you should ask that question. Why the snarf are the Israelites sacrificing at all? If you're a parent and you can't explain that to your kids, you need to listen. Because we got like, to like keep the Old Testament at such a distance, not recognizing that all of it builds to Christ and gives us a complete understanding of what God is doing from beginning to end. Why the Israelites offer sacrifices and all? Well, let's, let's be clear, okay? In the beginning, I'm not going to go through the whole Old Testament. In the beginning... God established, yes, a relationship with Adam and Eve in the garden. We know that. And at that time, there was communion, right? There was perfect fellowship and and love, and it was beautiful. It was all in harmony. Men and women dependent on, on God's word. They enjoyed God's provision. They fulfilled their obligation under God's rule to work with joy. Thoroughly enjoying it. And God, let's not forget, delighted in them. Okay, so there's relationship. It's awesome. And for a time, who knows how long, there was peace and fulfillment and contentment. And then there was a fall. And sin entered the world. And we know the relationship broke. There was no longer harmony. There was destruction. There was death. There was chaos. There was antagonistic relationships. Everything broke. And God, we need to understand this, in His perfect holiness, cannot have relationship with sinful men. And men are sentenced to die. Deservedly so. But in His perfect love, right? We can't, can't have half the story. In His perfect love, God desired to see men restored to that relationship again. He wanted to bring them back in the garden. 
And so beginning with the choosing of Abraham, God makes several promises, several covenants. Now, God doesn't have to do this. But he pursues men. He has a plan to rescue men. And he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to not only rescue your family and bless your family, but through your family, I'm going to fix it all. I'm going to heal the world. Not just you, Abraham, everybody. And then God gets even more specific, and he makes a promise to a guy named Moses. Specifically, he gives what we know as the law. And through God's giving of the law, what did he do? He made it possible to have relationship temporarily, not completely, with men. You have the intentional sins of men, and you have the unintentional sins of men. Which ones are those? The ones you don't know about, aren't thinking about. Those moments when you shouldn't have loved as you should, you know, you shouldn't have loved or should have loved more than you did, or you shouldn't have hated as much as you did. There were even sacrifices made for unintentional sins. You see Job praying for his children just in case they've sinned and they're not thinking about it. Men are sinful. And so he made a way, that is God, for sins to be atoned for. To be covered. For the penalty to be absorbed. His wrath to be poured out on a substitute. An animal will be sacrificed at the temple. So, think of it this way. An animal in my place. That's what it is. I'm going to kill this animal when I should kill you. and I'm going to take its blood and... Forgive your sin. And they would sacrifice over and over again, all year long at different times for different reasons. And he asked, okay, well, what kinds of sacrifices were supposed to be brought? Well, God was very specific. There's a book called the book of Leviticus. It's pretty much a book of laws. It explains in detail what sacrifices are acceptable and what you're not. And there were severe divine consequences if the priests or the people fail to offer the correct offerings. You even have Aaron's sons, right? Aaron, the first high priest. His sons, are the Bible says, offer basically incorrectly, and God just kills them. And Moses has to come to Aaron and say, dude, God is God. And it says, Aaron held his peace. Because God was serious about his sacrifices. Leviticus 22 specifically addresses what we're talking about in Malachi. Of the offerings that are coming to the altar. And it says this in verse 20. And I've always wanted to preach Leviticus. People go, are you kidding me? It'd be awesome. It's going to happen one day, I'm telling you. Because the laws are like, you know, don't boil some thing in a goat's milk or something. It's like crazy, okay? If your cow falls in the ditch, make sure you blood sacrifice. I mean, it's, it's weird. But we're going to do it one day. It's going to be rad. Levitic- <laughs> we will do it. Leviticus 20. Here's what he says. Okay, it's like, I wonder what kind of sacrifice. Is supposed to- He's very specific. He says, you shall not offer anything. What does anything mean in Hebrew? Anything that has a blemish. For it will not be acceptable for you. He continues, in case they're confused. 
And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings, because there was five different kinds of offerings, but we'll, we don't need to talk about that. But a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Verse 22. What do you mean by perfect? Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs. <laughs> you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. All right. God is very specific. If it has an itch, you know, it looks like the, that sheep over there is scratching itself a little too much. He must have an itch, right? I mean, God is like very, things got to be perfect. And God doesn't want any confusion because he knows how, how apt men are to twist things. Oh, I don't know if you really meant that, right? God's like, I'm very clear about what I mean. And so, we have to understand something. God is not, this is so huge, God is not particular about the sacrifice because this unblemished animal somehow intrinsically is more holy than a disabled one. Okay? That's not what this is about. What this is about is God being particular because the sacrifice has actually less to do, catch this, with forgiving the sin of men and more to do with displaying the glory and the beauty and the mercy and the perfection of God. The sacrifice is about God. It's not about men. Because there's nothing magical about an animal being sacrificed. But if God says, this is how you will atone for sins, that says something infinitely amazing about God. The demand for a perfect sacrifice displayed God first as a just king who is serious about sin. What would it be like if God just said, throw whatever you want up there. Throw some bacon, that's cool, whatever. It's got itches, scabs, I don't care, just cut something up and sacrifice it. You would see that God's not really serious about this. Therefore, maybe my sin's not really that serious. See where that leads? But the sacrifice also declares him to be this amazing father who is loving enough, forgiving enough, and merciful enough to even have a sacrifice. To even make a way to have relationship. See, the purpose of worship through sacrifice was to make the name of God great in Israel and among the nations. You notice how many times God talks about his name being despised? He's like, yeah, you've, you've made polluted sacrifices and you've despised my name for the world. Because the sacrifices and all of worship is always about God. It's not about us. So God tells them very simply, your sacrifices are lame, literally and figuratively. He tells the Israelites that they're despising his name by polluting his table. So what are they doing? Well, specifically, the people are bringing him 
their leftovers and their secondhand stuff. Instead of offering the best of their flocks, literally they're bringing blind animals and lame animals and sick animals and scabbed up animals to the priests to offer for their sin. And God calls them on it. And God does condemn the priests for offering unacceptable sacrifices because they're the ones making the offering. They were responsible to protect the purity of worship and to ensure that God's name was not profane. They were in charge of that. And next week, he will have much to say to them. If you want to hear a sermon that's going to be a huge cup check for pastors, come next week. Okay? But here... God is indirectly speaking to the people, I believe, about the sacrifices that the priest should be stopping, but he's talking to the people. A people who are bringing, as I said, lame sacrifices to the altar, to the Lord's table, that he has invited them to graciously, that they don't deserve to be at. They have despised his altar, and they have literally taken it lightly. It's not that big a deal. In truth, what they're saying is they're taking God very lightly. I shouldn't say it. That's what God is saying. They're actually despising God. Because worship isn't about them. It's about God. They do not love God the Father enough to honor Him. And they do not fear God the Master enough to obey Him. That's what's going on. And quite frankly, that's what goes on with us. Our worship is a declaration of the worth of God. Now, there's a little side note here that I think is important to to talk about, is that there's a very personal aspect to worship. And what I mean is, no one truly knows what someone else is offering to another. When we're worshiping here together, I have no idea necessarily where your heart is if I haven't talked with you or engaged with you. I don't know how much you've given. I don't know um, what it means necessarily if you're raising your hand singing or if you're not singing at all. I, I really don't know. But God does. And it's, think about this, even if the priest might be able to tell that the sacrifice is, say, blind, he's still not saying anything. He's still offering it. It's unlikely that anyone could tell the difference between a blind animal and one that has sight as it's offered up on the table. By all appearances, then, it looks like pure worship. That was really convicting. Because the truth is, as we offer God different sacrifices, whether it be sacrifice of our time, our talent, our money, our voice, whatever it is, man, we can fake everybody out. We really can. But what God shows to Malachi, or through Malachi to Israel, is that they can never fake him out. 
Jethro may not know what this guy over here has in his flock. But God does. God knows exactly what's in the man's flock. God knows what he's been given. And God knows exactly what he's held back. And God always desires men's hearts more than their sacrifice. I want you to hear that. But God knows without doubt when a man has given a heartless sacrifice. See, the the truth is, these people are giving sacrifices. And God is getting behind that saying, yep, that you gave the sacrifice, that you showed up, that you wrote a check, that you served, is actually quite secondary to why you're doing it. And what is the heart behind it, actually? Because you could fake everybody out, but you're not faking out God. The Israelites, basically, their worship is half-hearted, and actually we find out it's flat-out disobedient. And it is that way because of one simple truth. God is no longer important to them. They don't love Him, and they don't fear Him. And to reveal their hearts in this matter, God presents them a challenge uh, a couple verses in where He says, why don't you go ahead and present that to your governor? That messed up sacrifice you're putting in my altar, go ahead and offer that to your governor and, and see if he'll accept it and show you favor. And the question is obviously rhetorical, and the answer is no, the governor would not accept it. I mean, can you imagine paying part of your taxes or just holding back what you owe to some kind of institution that's worldly? I don't mean worldly in a sinful way, just not God. Or otherwise, just giving some kind of less than to the world and going, I can probably get around the consequences here. So the question is, why wouldn't they offer that to their governor? Because he knows they won't. And the truth is, because they love the world more than they love God. Or perhaps they fear the world or what it has to offer in losing it more than they fear God. It's one or the other. We only hold back from God when something has become more important than Jesus. Period. And when by our attitude or actions, we end up declaring something more supreme than God, more central to our lives than God, or more enjoyable than God, we're in a bad place. You see, when we fear God, when we truly fear God as master, I don't mean like, oh, don't kill me, but there is a real genuine fear there of recognizing who God is. When we fear God as master, as he said here, then we just simply recognize him as supreme. We, we define him or, or declare him to be the measure of all things. He, it is the deep conviction that he is better than any other so-called God there is. He is the creator of all things. He's the very definition of goodness, the very definition of power and love and wisdom. He is supreme, and we, we know that. That's when you fear God as master. Or when you, when you love him as, as father, I believe it's when you make him really pretty central to your lives. Where you actually see him and live out as if he is the most important thing in our life. 
We trust him like a father more than anyone else. We obey him before anyone else. We trust his opinion on everything else because he is a wise, good, perfect father who will only give us his best. Bringing him honor as dad or bringing him dishonor becomes the governing force in our decision making. Is that the governing force in your decision making? Or is it, can I get away with this? Or is this that bad? How close to the edge can I get? Or is it, what's going to bring more honor to God? Or is this going to bring dishonor to God? And I believe actually the last part is perhaps most important. Not just as master and father, but as God. And when you really worship him as God, I think that we end up finding our ultimate joy in him. Because to find something beautiful to enjoy is to find something just enjoyable in itself. I mean, purely, truly enjoyable. So, when you get to a place of of truly loving and, and, and fearing God, you're in this place where I think leads to joy. We actually have joy in God's presence, joy among God's people, joy in God's provision, joy in God's pro- uh, His promises, even joy knowing that you can give Him joy. Like it's my delight for Him to delight. I've said this before, it's like watching my kids, right? I want them to obey me be- out of delight, not out of fear. But I'll take fear. Right? But I don't want to always fear. So we, we kind of step back and we say, if all of life is worship, then we need to actually consider what our lives declare about God's value. Really. Is, is, he, is he valuable enough to you to deny yourself anything this world might have to offer? If that's what it came down to. Is he valuable enough for you to deny your comfort? Is he valuable enough for you to give up your money? Is he valuable enough for you to give up your time? Is he valuable enough for you to give up your reputation? Is he valuable enough to you to give up whatever power you might gain? Is he valuable enough for you to give up your child? Is he valuable enough for you to give up your life? And I don't mean just saying it. That's what we're talking about. And let's just make it even like simpler. Like, those are really big. Hold up. Okay. I'm just going to sound like really mean critical pastor, but that's okay. Is he valuable enough to show up to worship on time? I'll tell you right now, that says absolutely nothing about your opinion of me or the church has everything to do with your view of God and his view of what's going on here. Is he he valuable enough for you to sing? And I thought about this question while I was driving in today. Like, when you're in heaven, assuming you're in heaven, when you're in heaven and you're sitting before the Lord who has... You, for, the, for the moment, you, you recognize all the beauty and provision and everything. Like, you understand it fully. Do you think you're going to sit like this as everyone else is singing? Do you think that? Are you going to sing in heaven? 
I'm thinking you're going to. Is he important enough for you to serve him? It's really simple stuff, I think, sometimes. And I think the disconnect we have is we think that those things are unimportant. And what I'm trying to tell you is that that's actually revealing what is important or how you view the importance of God. And I'm not keeping track. I don't have a chart. And if your mind's going there, like right, your legal defense team right now is running to your head as to all the reasons why you can't do any of these things, it's not what it's about. You're missing the point. So how do we make Jesus the most important thing? So let's close out with Jesus because that's important. How do you get to that place? We need to look at the cross. Now, I want you to really think about the cross in a very particular way. Because, like, we can say, oh, you know, Jesus, he died for your sins and rose from the dead. God be praised. Take communion and go. I want you to think about the cross in a very particular way within this context here. See, at the cross, we see God's worth in how he displays how valuable we are to him. Catch that? And until you see the worthiness of God in the sacrifice of Christ, you will struggle in your obedience, particularly in living sacrificially for Him. See, the cross, this is amazing. The cross reveals God to be this just king and master, right? That was their problem. You don't fear me as master. Well, look at the cross. It reveals Him as this just king king and master who demands our obedience, right? This is God's world. This is God's rule. And the crucifixion of Jesus reveals that God is more serious about sin than we could possibly imagine. God is holy. He hates rebellion. He hates partial obedience. There's actually no such thing. It's called disobedience. He hates sin. And God justly pours out His wrath in a way that is impossible to understand on His Son. Pours out His wrath. Allegiance is not optional. The Creator demands unconditional obedience from His creation, and failure to obey is a failure to to fear God. I believe our faithfulness matters, our obedience matters, and to approach the altar of God, right, to come to even the communion table here, and to approach it without fear, with a little bit of trembling, is to deny first the ugliness of your sin. You really don't believe you're that bad. It's to deny that your sin is that offensive to God. That you're that broken. That you're that rebellious. But more than that, it is to deny the infinite value of the price it cost to forgive it. Displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ. Matthew 10, 28 Jesus speaking, we'll preach on Matthew. I look forward to this sermon. He says this, 
Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's Jesus talking. I thought he only said nice things. He told us to fear. To have a real sense of what is important and what is not in this life. Who is the master and ruler of this world? That's only part of the cross, right? That's just one part. If you only stop there, it's like, I'm just going to go out and be a, a really obedient person and not let God smite me, right? That's not the whole cross. Because the cross also reveals God to be a loving Father who is immeasurably merciful. Right? The sacrifice is the same thing. Look at the cross. The sacrifice. He is worthy of all Value. He is most valuable because he is loving enough to sacrifice his most valuable possession. Do you recognize what God gave up to have fellowship with you? You, sinner, broken, rebellious, child of wrath, ugly, unlovable, all those things. And he said, no valuable. And I'm going to give up my most valuable possession, my one and only son. And he saves us by offering this infinitely costly sacrifice. Do you see that God could not give you more mercy? God could not love you more. He could not sacrifice more. The cross of Christ reveals, I think, what God thinks of us. And he thought us, for those who are in Christ, so valuable that he was willing to give us everything he had to give. Willing to give us everything he had to give. Romans 8.32 It's a verse that came up in our studies. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, the cross brings, I think, Father and Master together. And we will joyfully sacrifice for God when we see the cross as the picture of God as both loving Father and Holy Master. See, love, love without obedience is a failure to see God as a master worthy to be feared. But obedience without joy is a failure to see God as Father worthy to be adored. See, it goes together. The cross moves us to obey God out of love. Not out of fear but we recognize the fear. We see it. We know who he is. But we see the cross and we're moved to obey in response to what he's done. Not to get him to do something else. There's nothing else to do. And we'll only live our lives, I believe, of sacrifice to God when we see how God has sacrificed for us. That's where it starts. C.T. Studd, who is a stud, 
missionary said this, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And if you saw or read about his life, you'd understand that he sacrificed much because he really believed that. The cross, I think, shows us that total sacrifice. And by total, I mean every part of your life. Not just your money. Not just your time. Everything. Total sacrifice is what actually characterizes genuine worship. It's our confession that God is supremely important. God didn't sacrifice His Son simply so He could declare us worthy. He sacrificed His Son so that we might declare His name worthy by living lives of sacrifice. It's not about us. It's about God. And the resurrection shows us, quite simply, that you've been given new life to make much of God. Many are going to hear this message and they're going to think to themselves, all right, I'm just going to go home and sacrifice more and be more holy. And you'll have missed the point. Please know that any sacrifice you offer for your own benefit is imperfect and lame. Don't offer lame sacrifices. God doesn't want your sacrifices. He says that more than maybe anything about sacrifice. He doesn't want that. He wants your heart. And the thing about God, and this is all about God, God saves you, no one else. But when God saves somebody, when he grabs your heart and opens your eyes to see the glory of Christ, his glory in the face of Christ, you begin to see that whatever you might actually be able to give him pales in comparison to what he's given you. It really is pretty meaningless. But he still delights in it. Our worship is a declaration of two things. Our unworthiness and God's worthiness. And so we're gathered here to worship and to declare those two things. And so we will give the best of our time and we'll give the best of our talents and we'll give the best of our treasure because we know that how we worship is important, not for us, but to make his name great. Every act of sacrificial worship is only worthwhile insofar as it declares how worthy, how supreme, how loving, and how great our King is. And so as we close the service, we will take communion. And you are making a confession, not just experiencing something, though you are. You are declaring something, and you are doing so publicly with brothers and sisters in Christ. You are declaring your unworthiness, but more than that, God's worthiness. And when you sing, you are declaring and revealing what you think about God. And especially if you're a really bad singer and you sing loud, Man, you are worshiping, brother. I mean, that's good. Because we think, man, that guy should not be Why is he singing? He must really love Jesus because it's not to entertain anybody, right? But there should be a joy in that as we come and we just go, God, you're awesome. You are great. You are a king. Don't make a lame sacrifice. It's better not to make a sacrifice at all.